From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An Antarctic glacier the size of Florida, where very few people have been, offers a front row seat to climate change. Today, a Boulder glaciologist who's just back from Thwaites. If Thwaites really gets going, the rate of sea level rise will climb quite a bit. And that's really a challenge for cities and for infrastructure everywhere, perhaps before the end of the century. Boulder's Ted Scambos is part of a global research project that has continued despite the pandemic. Then, Colorado grapples once again with whether public employees should be able to collectively bargain. Purplish dissects the debate. What we're seeing this year is a new push by state lawmakers to push Colorado into that more union-friendly category. Legacy Circle members include Colorado Public Radio in their estate plans. We want to perpetuate what Colorado Public Radio is doing. And I like to be able to know that I had a part in that. We're hoping that something we leave continues on in a positive way. I think that's part of building an understanding and appreciation that will help perpetuate for future generations. Information at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This week's climate report from a United Nations panel is harrowing. The effects of a warming planet are happening even faster than expected. For three decades, Boulder scientist Ted Scambos has watched the impact of global warming on one continent. And just recently, he got an aerial view of Antarctica's massive Thwaites Glacier. We spent two hours in a plane flying at 200 miles an hour. It's a prop plane. And we were flying over Thwaites Glacier from the moment we took off to the moment we landed to go from the very top of it, way up in the interior of Antarctica, where there's a base, uh, all the way out to the coast. And then as you get near the coast, these gigantic tears in beautiful patterns, but they span the entire view out the window of the plane to the horizon of a continent just literally tearing apart and breaking into these city block-sized chunks that are drifting out into the sea. Uh, This system has been like that for centuries. It's a large system, but it's accelerating and it's retreating. And the future modeling shows that it's retreating. It will likely evolve to a point where it's flowing several times as fast as it's flowing now and dumping many times more ice into the ocean than it's dumping now, probably beginning within the next several decades. What we're seeing right now is the very beginning of a very rapid retreat. Thwaites, which is the size of Florida, has been called the Doomsday Glacier because its loss would be catastrophic. Ted Scambos is the top American scientific coordinator on the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration, which is studying the region. Worst case scenario, that group says, is that a total collapse could raise global sea levels by two feet. Do you see yourself now as a documenter of destruction or as as a messenger still for behavior change? Definitely a messenger for behavioral change. I guess I need to make it clear that the two feet of sea level rise that it holds within it, if it were to completely fall apart, won't really be a factor for many hundreds of years. 
The problem is that if weights really gets going, the rate of sea level rise will climb quite a bit. And that's really a challenge for cities and for infrastructure everywhere. That's the thing that we're worried about is that as this gets underway, it'll still be a big challenge, perhaps before the end of the century. Before the end of the century. So there's still time to reverse this? Is that fair to say? There's still time for us to slow the pace down for how fast this glacier comes apart. And that's really an important thing to say. The models show that if we stop putting our foot on the gas pedal in terms of climate change, that Thwaites also will slow down in terms of the pace of collapse. That's the problem is that we're really driving climate change hard and fast because of what we're doing to the atmosphere that through a series of changes in the Pacific Ocean and winds around Antarctica is causing warm water to reach the weights and trigger all of these changes that we're studying. Why does the sea level rise take longer than the falling apart? The initial breakup that we're concerned about in the next few years is on a piece of ice that's already afloat. So that hasn't, um, it's already contributed what sea level rise is going to contribute. And besides, it's really trivial at the scale of the ocean how mm. much sea level rise has happened because of that piece. But Thwaites, on the other hand, as you said, it's the size of Florida. And it's really a whole section of Antarctica, not like an ordinary glacier, more like a whole section of Antarctica that's flowing towards the sea. So people think of a glacier and they're familiar with beautiful mountain glaciers that look like a ribbon of ice flowing out of the mountains. That's not the case here. We have an entire coastline stretching 60 miles wide, 70 miles wide, that's moving towards the ocean. Right now, it's braced by this floating plate of ice and some high mountain areas that are below the surface. The ice is riding over them, but they're mm. acting as a kind of a braking force. As these other braces and restraining objects become less important because of the changes going on near the coast, the ice is thinning, the ice is retreating, the future for Thwaites looks fairly dramatic if we don't slow down how much warm water the circulation of the ocean is delivering to the front of Thwaites Glacier. That's the thing that's really causing the, the rapid retreat. The International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration you're working with, it's a $50 million effort by about 100 of the world's top scientists. One scientist said, what is happening at Thwaites is a bit like a windshield that cracks. First, it's a nick in the glass, and then little cracks kind of radiate out, and then it just shatters. You talked about the period of time that we'll see sea levels begin to rise if climate change isn't seriously addressed. Would that mean that those living in coastal cities like Los Angeles or Miami or New York towards the end of the years 2000, like, that will those will just become unsustainable places? I think the real challenge is not so much that they'll become completely unlivable, although other places that don't have the money to address the issues that could well be forced to, to close or to radically change. Most of the cities you mentioned would instead be spending a lot of money trying to rebuild their waterfronts or protect uh, infrastructure that's right up against the coast. Uh, in Miami, it's particularly difficult because the ground is quite porous. And so a simple wall at the sea coast won't do it for Miami. It's a tougher problem than that. But there's many areas around the world that would have to 
spend a lot of money or abandon a lot of infrastructure if sea level rise goes at the pace that we think it could if a large part of West Antarctica, that's where Thwaites sits, right in the center of West Antarctica, begins to destabilize because of warm ocean water at depth. The real challenge for us with this whole problem of global warming is that no particular day or month is a crisis. It's a very, very slow moving catastrophe. And it challenges us to take the big steps that we need to take when they're based on a forecast that's a generation ahead of us. Give us a little history of Thwaites. Uh, Has anything like this happened in the past? It's an interesting question on the history of Thwaites. This was essentially the last part of Antarctica to be mapped. It was discovered, so to speak, in 1940, finally by aircraft flying over the area, a part of Richard Byrd's expeditions to Antarctica. It's the last stretch of coastline where people were unsure exactly where the ocean stopped and the ice began. Since then, it's been mapped extensively, mostly by aircraft. And in fact, very few people, by Antarctic standards even, very few people have been on Thwaites Glacier itself. And at the very front where we're working, it's just a handful, less than 30 people have been there. Wow. Um, Longer term history, the geologic history, yes, this glacier was identified a long time ago that if a warm period in the past had occurred, chances are that part of Antarctica would disappear eventually and probably has disappeared once or twice in the last million years during the very warmest periods between ice ages. So in fact, the past gives us a roadmap for how West Antarctica comes apart, but the present is a different thing. The present is really moving quite rapidly in terms of climate change. Past climate change was due to things like changes in the tilt of the Earth's axis and changes in the shape of the Earth's orbit around the sun, things that progress very slowly over centuries. What's happening now is we've taken an element of the climate system, the Earth's atmosphere, and we are jamming the button that says get warmer about as hard as you can possibly do it compared to the way it's evolved in the past. It's remarkable to think that there are spots on Earth where just essentially a few dozen folks have been. You're among them. What does it feel like to be in a place where so few bipeds have been? (laughs) There's quite a few bipeds. I guess a penguin. That's right. (laughs) But yeah, us featherless bipeds. uh, (laughs) We're we're in a limited supply down there. Um, It is a strange feeling to see the plane leave and leave you behind knowing that you're the only person within a couple of hundred miles or you and your group are the only people within a couple of hundred miles and that you're completely on your own, that if you didn't plan properly, whatever you don't have, you're not going to get, let me put it that way. So if you didn't bring enough fuel or you didn't bring enough food, that's rarely an issue, but you're really on your own. If you need a particular metal piece to fix something, um, you're going to have to wait quite a while for somebody to bring that out to you if it's even available on the continent. It's a unique feeling because we're so used to that instantaneous, uh, I'll go to the store and get it, or I'll go over to the hardware store, or I'll go on Amazon or something like that. The facts are there's a lot of planning involved. And when the plane leaves, 
<laughs> I don't know about everybody else, but I'm going through a checklist in my head about, God, did we get this right? Did we bring that over? Do we have all this stuff? What about that software? What about that computer? Is that going to work properly? All of those things, because you're really self-dependent. What was your mission on the latest trip? So we had visited two years ago and we'd set up these large stations that make a lot of measurements of the air and the ocean uh, and the ice. They're resting on top of the floating plate. We drilled a hole through the ice so that we could lower instruments into the ocean below. Uh, So the total length of the cable was about 2,500 feet. And there's ocean instruments at the end of it and then a couple of sensors all along the way. Two years in the Antarctic had caused a bunch of the bits and pieces to fail, to stop working. The stations weren't sending back much data anymore. So we were there to repair those, get those ready, both for a potential visit later this season and within the next month or two, if it's going to happen. And also so they would collect data for this coming Southern hemisphere winter and into the next summer so that we get as many years as possible a record of what the ocean does and what the atmosphere does at the front of Thwaites Glacier. We went there to repair the stations, get them working again, and also recover data that was stored in other isolated stations that we'd scattered around on the ice shelf and bring that data back so that we could evaluate it uh, in more detail. And this is data that communities uh, bracing for what might come can make good use of, I gather. (laughs) You could put it that way, but really what we're after is a better story about how Thwaites is going to evolve over the next few decades and what we can do to improve models that forecast the sea level rise from Antarctica in general. That's that's really the goal. We have a whole bunch of data, not just the part of the project that I'm working on closely, but overall, we want the projects to hand each other data and ideas and results and merge them into a real picture of how this part of the world is going to be impacted by warmer oceans and warmer atmosphere, but mostly it's the warm ocean that's affecting the system the most. Getting a roadmap for what's going to happen there is the best thing this project can do. And we're at the point of starting on that kind of a description. The project is likely to be extended a bit because of COVID delays, but we'll have had about uh, six to seven years of work on this. And I think we're, like I said, at the point of being able to take a look at every aspect of the glacier and paint a clearer picture of what's there and what's happening. Did you get the repairs done? Is everything set up then for the coming seasons? Partly. We didn't get the extended camping presence that we wanted on this trip. NSF faced a number of big challenges having to do with COVID-19 and the quarantining that was involved. The, The season was essentially canceled between 2020 and 2021. Just a few technicians visited sites all over Antarctica, not just Thwaites, It was an absolute skeleton crew for McMurdo for the U.S. program and their main base, McMurdo, last year. This year, they attempted to put some science teams out onto the ice. There were a lot of challenges, as I said. Less support personnel showed up, were able to be, were able to spend the time that it would take to go through the quarantine requirements um, in the U.S. and in New Zealand. And you mentioned the possibility of going down 
fairly soon, presumably to do some mop-up. Ted, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you very much, too. This was great. Ted Scambos of Boulder, who's helping lead the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration in Antarctica. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with how the great economic reshuffling has renewed the debate over collective bargaining for public sector employees in this state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. We're all broken in our own ways, and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And I remember them like whispering behind my back of being like, oh, don't say that to Lynn. You're going to give her an eating disorder. We're coming back on March 4th with some of the most powerful stories we've ever told. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. The pandemic has put a spotlight on work-life balance. People are evaluating what they do, how much they earn, the benefits they get. That sort of reevaluation can be especially tricky, though, for employees in the public sector. Some state lawmakers want to give them the power to collectively bargain, but there's fierce opposition. Purplish, our politics podcast, breaks down the debate. Let's join public affairs editor Megan Verlee and public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. There are more than 350,000 people who work in Colorado's public sector. They're the people that you might think of, police officers, firefighters, but that also includes truck drivers and university professors and the doctors and nurses that work at some of our state's hospitals. My name is Sarah Jungles. I'm a football CNA at Denver Health, and I'm a nursing student here at Arapahoe Community College. So on a recent Monday morning, I met one. Sarah Jungles showed me around the community college where she's getting her nursing degree, And like she mentioned, she's also working full-time at Denver Health, a job that she started about seven years ago. When I first started at Denver Health, I made $13 an hour, and that was significantly more than my home state of Indiana. Um, So I thought it was good until uh, rent prices. And I uh, only paid $600 a month in rent in Indiana. So uh, when I came out here and I realized my rent was going to be more $13 to $1,400, it was pretty quick that I realized I wasn't going to be able to keep up with the bills. It's been tough. On the day that we visited the college, she showed me the on-campus food pantry that she's been relying on to get through a lot of months. Even working full-time and taking out student loans, it's paycheck to paycheck um, every month. And usually we end up having to come here at least once a month to get food. And um, usually we end up having to like pawn something before rent is due to pay rent and then try to make it up um, the next month. Um, so it's been a battle. She's hoping that things will change when she graduates this year and upgrades her position. I mean, hopefully um, I'll get paid substantially more so I can be a little bit more self-sufficient and hopefully give back. But even as she's trying to change her individual situation, she's also working on something bigger. She's joined a union effort. What really was a big thing that started um, was back in like May 2020 at Denver Health, we were asked to donate our PTO back to the organization and to 
really just kind of take time off without pay. And during that time, our leadership gave themselves over a million dollars and uh, bonuses. Um, so it was just one of those things where you saw that we were all sacrificing. We were all working very, very difficult jobs with the pandemic going on. And we were kind of treated as we were replaceable. So I think that that was kind of where everyone kind of was, we need to do something to change. Today, Sarah is working with the Communication Workers of America, Local 7799, and they've linked up with hundreds of other potential new members, not just from Denver Health, but also from the Denver Public Library, UC Health, and the University of Colorado. And wages are just one of our things that we're fighting for. Um, there's a lot of things for safety that we could use. Um, just being able to make sure that everyone gets benefits and is able to take care of their families. Just knowing that they respect your opinion and that they care about us and they care about our safety. So there'll be a lot of things that we still need to work for to make better. There is one problem, though. These public employees don't always have the right to do the number one thing that unions do to bargain with their bosses because the whole effort is running up against a fundamental part of Colorado's kind of unusual labor laws. And the question of whether that should change is becoming one of this year's biggest fights at the state capitol. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics and policy. I'm Megan Verley, in for Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. Today's episode is focused on a proposal to significantly expand the union rights of Colorado's public sector workers. Some of the top Democrats in the legislature want to allow workers for hundreds of cities, counties, school districts, and other local public employers to collectively bargain. We're going to explain why that would be a really big deal for Colorado, what it would actually mean, and why it's also leading to some pretty sharp divisions even among Democrats. Andy, before we get to what lawmakers want to change about Colorado's labor laws, I think you probably have to fill us in on where they stand right now. Yeah, I think I could probably do that. Colorado, just to explain the general situation, has relatively low union presence. You know, relatively few people here are members of a union, sub 10 percent. But after decades of declines in memberships here and frankly across the country, there's been more interest in unions. There's been this kind of spark of life for the labor movement. I think we've been seeing that in our own newscasts and reporting a lot this spring. Places unionizing, unions going on strike. Yeah, exactly. We saw the King Supers strike, which <laughs> captured a lot of people's attention. What do we want? When do we want it? What do we want? We've heard about union drives at places like Spruce Confections in Boulder or at individual Starbucks stores. And there's just more interest in general in taking advantage of these kind of union and labor rights that are built into uh, not just state but federal law for some workers. Now, I know many states have moved in recent decades to make it harder to organize, becoming right-to-work states where workplaces can't require that employees join a union. It seems like Colorado must not have those laws if we've had the King Supers strike and the kind of organizing drives that you just mentioned. Totally. Like I mentioned, we don't have especially high union density, but Colorado laws are fairly supportive of unions, maybe not the friendliest. But ultimately, most workers can go through that process of, you know, holding a vote, forming a union, bargaining with your employer and potentially going on strike. But as we were kind of alluding to, there is one big group who's left out. And as we are going to go through this episode and explain, that is public workers, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. What are the rules for public workers in Colorado? And are they different for local public workers and state employees? 
All right, let's start. I'd love to do this by going all the way back. Maybe we can get some time machine music to the landmark Labor Peace Act that the state passed back in 1943. It was called the Labor Peace Act because it was literally meant to stop violence. The state is known for some like hardcore violence, mostly perpetrated against union members, famous Ludlow Massacre. The government at that point wanted to settle the rules for how it works for private sector employees, public sector. One of the main things they wanted to do was to make sure that no matter what rules they changed about the private sector, that the government kept a lot of its power over its own workers. And so dating back to then, maybe earlier, the laws here in Colorado have limited the core union rights for uh, those public workers. And that's similar to what about 23 other states do. They set special rules that make it harder for those public employees to take advantage of the rights everybody else has. That seems like it's in the the interest of public sector employers. I mean, employers yeah. don't usually give their employees the right to, to organize voluntarily. Correct. Yeah. And we'll get a little bit into the arguments for why you might want to do that or might not. But the upshot for now is that a lot of public workers just like cannot collectively bargain, can't do the big union thing unless they get permission, basically, from local elected officials or from voters. It's really left up to the local level. Well, I, I want a, a quick time out here because I do know that we have a lot of public sector unions. I mean, our coverage of education always involves the teachers unions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if there's something going on with the Aurora police or the Denver police, we go to their union for a comment. So it's not like Colorado doesn't have any unionized public workers. Yeah, that's totally right. But those workers tend to fall into the categories that you named, the ones where they're most common, cops, firefighters, teachers. And those only cover about a quarter of the cities and counties and school districts of the state. I should also mention that as of recently, state employees themselves have some collective bargaining rights. But the upshot is that it's only allowed where it's allowed. There's not really a statewide standard letting these local workers really unionize. So they have to get permission from their city council, their county commissioners, or from voters to unionize. Is that happening anywhere? I mean, it must be because there are some unions. It's happened over the years, but it's really difficult to make progress if you're a union supporter in areas that don't really support unions. It means that, you know, Colorado Springs firefighters tried to convince voters to let them collectively bargain a few years ago, and it got shot down something like 66% to 34%. Because you can imagine in Colorado Springs, not a lot of public support for unions and therefore pretty hard to get those union rights. So basically because union organizing and bargaining rights are in the hands of voters or in elected officials elected by those voters, mm. whether you're a public sector worker who has these rights kind of may fall along the political lines of your region, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. And for union supporters, they want that collective bargaining right because, you know, it opens up the door to negotiate really specific stuff, to negotiate a contract, to negotiate how much you get paid, uh, what your benefits are, how the workplace works. They want that so that they have a lot more leverage over what happens in the workplace. So to recap... Colorado for a long time has made it hard for public sector workers to collectively bargain. It's moved to give them sort of a, a local control version of that if they can win it. But now it sounds like the fight's at the state capitol? That is exactly right. It's actually a bit of a perennial issue at the state capitol, this question of who, who can collectively bargain when and where. But this year's been special. 
So every time that Democrats win the trifecta, every time that they capture, that is to say, the governor and the Senate and the House, you know, total control of state government, every time that happens, Democrats take on this public sector union issue. They tend to have kind of mixed results. So go back to 2008. They try to pass a bill to let firefighters collectively bargain all across the state. The governor, Ritter, vetoes it. 2013, they pass another bill about firefighters bargaining. And Hickenlooper signs it, says it's a compromise. But ultimately, for kind of complicated reasons, it doesn't actually change much. Then, 2020, they've got the trifecta again. And this time, though, it comes out different. The legislature and the governor kind of team up to grant these collective bargaining rights to state employees, you know, people who work directly for the state, about, you know, 30,000 of them in all. And the reason this keeps happening is because Democrats are kind of between a rock and a hard place here, right? The union movement's a big supporter of Democratic politicians. Mm -hmm. So when Democrats get in office, they are beholden to organized labor to try and advance its interests. But on the other side, advancing public worker union rights, I imagine, comes with costs and potentially hassle for public employers. And so it sounds like in that history, what we're hearing is this tension between representing the interests of, of one of the big groups that makes up their coalition and trying not to rock the boat too much with a very large workforce whose paychecks they ultimately are at least partially responsible for covering. I would push back and say these lawmakers are not just representing union interests. Many of them believe this is a fundamental right that's good for the workplace. So the result has been that Colorado has stayed with about half the states, including a lot of more conservative states, that put some limits on that public sector bargaining. The other half of the states allow public sector bargaining a lot more universally. And what we're seeing this year is a new push by state lawmakers to push Colorado into that more union-friendly category. That sounds like it could be a really big change. What are they trying to do? Well, the biggest thing that we heard about even before session started was that two really influential Democrats were going to throw down the gauntlet, or the gantlet if you prefer, gauntlet, and, te- it's gauntlet. <laughs> and tear down pretty much all the limits that they could on public sector organizing. Uh, This bill draft was introduced by House Majority Leader Denea Eskar and new Senate President Steve Fenberg. Collective bargaining is a fundamental right that should be available to all Coloradans, regardless of where they work. Our current laws actually deny this basic right to some of the most important workers in our state, including tens of thousands of local public employees. Eskar is from Pueblo, if you didn't know, which is, of course, a strong union city with its Mm. historic uh, industrial base. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the draft was quite broad, and it said basically that public sector unions don't need permission to collectively bargain anymore. That if you work for, I don't know, the fire department in Westcliff and you get enough support to form a union, I don't even know if Westcliff has a fire department. Anyway, if you get enough support to form that union, then your boss has to play ball. So are there a lot of these unionizing efforts waiting in the wings? I mean, you mentioned the CNA we met at the top is part of an organizing drive. So if this bill passes, would there be a lot of people taking it up, I guess? At least in the Denver metro, I think that we would see a renewed effort. I'm not sure what it looks like outside of here. But, you know, um, we mentioned that that potential new union would cross from Denver Health to the library to the university. And just to get a sense of what was driving that, I called around to hear from, you know, for example, 
Nate Stone at Denver Public Library who described workers experiencing homelessness and poverty. So as we organized the union, we met more and more folks who were couch surfing, who experienced like periodic homelessness, who were who were sacrificing food on a regular basis. They want to be able to serve the community they love, but they should be able to afford to live in the community that they serve. Or from Macon Fessenden uh, at CU Health who described attrition so bad that colleagues were just constantly leaving. Then you're like, okay, I feel bad for my coworkers. Um, the patients aren't getting the care that they need because because they're short staffed and it's like, how do you you know, how do you square that? But so far these organizers haven't had luck getting that permission to bargain from their workforces, like Sarah Jungles explained. Unfortunately, our uh, leadership has chosen to not recognize our union for the last two years, so this would be something where they um, couldn't do that anymore. They would have to work with us. Andy, uh, you've said that this bill, if it really gets out there in the form that its backers want it to, could be one of the biggest debates of the session. And I can imagine why we're talking about hundreds of thousands of workers, potentially. Where are the battle lines falling at this point? Well, there's quite a few different battle lines, a number of different sides kind of lining up against this. Let me walk you through just a few, okay? Mm -hmm. First up, want to acknowledge that, of course, like some workers... Some employees just don't like the idea of unionization. Here's Todd Payne, a Westminster police officer, speaking out against the collective bargaining drive in that city at a city council meeting. All of the things that he laid out initially cannot be solved through collective bargaining. The fact that the state legislature has passed some horrible legislation won't be changed or affected by collective bargaining. I think collective bargaining just brings an adversarial role into what is happening at the Westminster Police Department. Okay, that makes sense to me. I mean, in any really large workforce, you're going to have some workers who support organizing and some who don't and who would probably be pretty mad to find out that they have to pay union dues down the line. Well, by the way, Supreme Court decision, U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Janice case, I believe, says that public sector workers actually can't be forced to pay those union dues. But point stands. A lot of them are maybe not going to want to be part of that new union type situation. That's really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. That's a, a useful point. Bigger than individual workers, though, Colorado cities and counties are a huge political force at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. They do not like giving up their power. I would assume that they would be one of the biggest opponents to this. Yeah, it's almost like you've read my stories on this. It's almost like I've been in the Capitol for years and years. That too. Good instincts. There's a, a coalition of a bunch of groups of, you know, cities and school leaders and chambers of commerce, and they've all written a letter objecting to this pretty strenuously. Well, yeah, as we've talked about, employers don't love when their workers get this right in the most part. But also, this could really cost some money. I mean, if all these different employee groups go on strike for more wages to, to increase their workforces, I pay taxes in the city of Denver. That eventually affects how much I'm paying and what other government services I get. So I could imagine a lot of local leaders would not be excited about this prospect. Yeah, for better or for worse, studies have found that unionized workforces win higher pay. Now, you could say that's better for retaining your workforce, training your people better. But also, yeah, that's a common argument and a common objection that this is going to take away some of the budgeting power that governments have that's going to force them to pay higher wages. I called up Scott James. He's a commissioner in Weld County about this. And he argued exactly that, that it was going to undermine 
his responsibility as an elected official. Oh boy, here goes the state taking the control of Weld County's budget out of the duly elected Weld County officials' hands. You could argue that it would be the largest unfunded mandate in Colorado history. We have no idea what it will cost. And he says that Weld County voters would likely never go for this kind of union bargaining. Makes sense. A very conservative county. A safe bet. So arguably this change is going over their heads, going around what they want. And he adds that, you know, he doesn't think that this is needed. He thinks that, uh, you know, workers have plenty of options already. I would say get with your, your fellow employees, get with your supervisors and come and talk to us. You don't need that collective bargaining. I think they found that the Board of County Commissioners is very reasonable in Well County. And his last big rhetorical point was that he wanted to know why the people supporting this change weren't just pursuing unionizing at their own local level. Nothing is forbidding them, Andrew, from doing so. Those are individual county commissioners. Let's talk lobbyists, because the groups that represent local governments, they have a big footprint at the Capitol, and I imagine Mm. that they are stomping pretty hard on this bill. Yes, we are hearing the words local control a lot this session, and those are some words that are really important to the Colorado State Legislature. Mm -hmm. I talked to Kevin Bomber. He's the head of the Colorado Municipal League. You can guess what those guys do. He was formerly a lobbyist, and now he's, you know, in leadership. He said, this cracked me up, like some kind of a retired cop coming back for one more case, he had to reinstate his lobbyist license. I bet there were a certain number of lawmakers who were not excited to see him uh, show up in their doors in that capacity. Uh, Bomber can make a forceful point, we'll say. Anyway, he's so firmly opposed to this, he's basically not even involved in the details on the negotiations because lawmakers already know that he ain't moving. This is Colorado. This is local control state. And there is nothing, and there should be nothing wrong with proponents Um, working at the local level as citizens and their voters and the governing bodies and crafting locally appropriate solutions, which may or may not include collective bargaining. Okay, so lawmakers who want to make this change are caught between two giant groups here, Mm -hmm. public sector workers and the unions that currently exist to represent them, uh, and local public employers who have a huge amount of political clout and Mm -hmm. can really influence an election, say. I don't think that these are the only forces at play, though. Yeah, that's right. There is a third force, a third who, in fact, a third person. Mm. And that who is Jared Polis, the governor. So from pretty much the second that I knew this bill was in the works, I had one big question, and that's where would Polis fall? Recently, we got a little bit more detail. Let me read you some of his spokesman's words about what Polis thinks about this bill. He said, The governor has made it clear to the bill sponsors and advocates that he will not support the bill in its current form. He points out that, yeah, sure, we signed the earlier state collective bargaining bill for those state employees, but he said that struck a balance between collective bargaining and elected representation. And he closed by saying the door is open to a much narrower legislation to expand those collective bargaining rights. So 
Not a great sign for the fate of the bill as it was originally drafted. No, that is uh, damning with something even less than faint praise. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. But to go back to it, basically, he is sort of trying to brush up his organized labor bona fides by pointing out that he did sign that stake workforce collective bargaining bill, but also making it really clear that he is not going to go for the big idea in this bill. Yeah, a fairly distinct line that he's drawn in the sand. Do we know where the line is? Like, what's on his side of the line? (laughs) Good good question. His office has been pretty close-lipped on it. The last statement we got was, we're going to continue to talk about it, basically. We do know that there are some avenues that he could take. Um, For example, the law that gave the collective bargaining to the state employees doesn't let them strike. So maybe they could carve out striking and say, you can't do that. Or maybe he could want to carve out whole workplaces. Maybe he wants to let cities off the hook or school districts off the hook and only focus it on universities and counties, which are a little bit more closely tied to the state. I think anytime we start talking about Jared Polis on Purplish, we start out talking about where he is on one specific issue. And then it becomes kind of the Jared Polis uh personality tests? Like, what does this say about Jared Polis's larger politics? Because they don't fall on standard Democratic lines often. The idea that he's willing to try to kibosh a, a major organizing bill this early in the process, what does it add to our picture of Jared Polis's politics? I'll say that I didn't feel surprised to know that he wouldn't support something quite as broad as this. You know, we've seen him tap the brakes or encourage some big changes to other stuff, too, like the paid family leave bill comes to mind. Um, He kind of steered that toward a much more private-based model instead of a big public investment. That was a big fight a few years ago. And then last year, there was that climate change bill that we spent the whole session with a bunch of Democratic lawmakers saying, we've got to do this, and Mm -hmm. Polis saying, "Uh, uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. That's that's where I'm getting deja vu. Yeah, or taxes. You know, he regularly (laughs) comes out and says he doesn't love income taxes. He wants to find other ways to fund government. And, you know, that that is a big bone of contention with a lot of progressives. So you can add this to that pile of bones of contention. So uh, once again, progressives not super happy with Jared Polis. Uh, of course, we're going into an election where he doesn't have uh, a strong primary challenger. So he may very well be able to afford to, to lose that wing of the party. Well, yeah. And I also think that in some ways it burnishes his image because he constantly positions himself a little bit more toward the center more pragmatic, whether or not you agree that this is a pragmatic approach. Polling seems to indicate from what I've seen that he's in a stronger position than the legislature. So he can draw a contrast there, not just against Republicans, but against his own party. Well, going back to the heart of this episode and the idea that Democrats really do want to do something on public sector organizing this session, Mm -hmm. is there any chance? I mean, we're more than a month into session. It usually takes a while for big bills to be negotiated, but they have to get introduced sometime if they're going to go anywhere. Yeah, I think that the whole thing is indeed back at the drawing table. But, you know, this is like the, gosh, the is it the fourth year of this Democratic trifecta? And I think the Democratic leaders have learned to work with Polis on issues like this. And they're not really backing down. You know, that just the other week, they brought a couple hundred people out for a rally about this bill to stand on the Capitol steps and say they wanted it. Well, that is uh, one way to get the governor's attention since his windows (laughs) overlook the plaza where these rallies tend to happen. Yep. Um, So 
what odds do you give it at this point? Obviously, you must think something's moving since you've spent a lot of time working on explaining it all to us. I I would guess that something will pass, but it will not remotely resemble how broad it was to begin with. And you're going to end up most likely with a lot of disappointed union people. Uh, but at the same time, I just, you know, I don't see the legislature letting this thing die altogether. That would be pretty embarrassing. And, you know, the pro-labor leaders in the legislature, like Dominic Moreno, who helped pass collective bargaining, actually, when he was the Commerce City Councilman, they seem to be on board for compromise. You know, I do think that the the caucus is committed to delivering collective bargaining rights for, for public employees. Perhaps some of the conversation is around a narrower bill as being contemplated by the governor. Maybe that's an element of what happens. But, you know, I, I do think in general, like, I'm certainly committed to trying to include as many public workers as possible, as long as the policy, you know, makes sense and is workable for all those different local entities. I want to acknowledge that Senator Moreno did seem to be operating a microwave or some kind of a digital lock in the background there. <laughs> he is a busy, busy dude. He's the new majority leader there in the Senate, actually. Well, and that speaks to something, right? He's in a leadership position mm -hmm. in the legislature. Uh, you said at the very beginning that the two lawmakers driving this the most are also in leadership. It seems like we've got yet another moment where Colorado Democrats are collectively having to figure out where they fall on the political spectrum, right? Are they, mm -hmm. with all this control of state government, are they going to push further into progressive policies? Or mm -hmm. do they still need to stand a bit closer to the middle because this state isn't as blue as some of their members might want? Oh, my God. Would you even call it purplish? I will continue to call it purplish so that people won't try to make us change the name of our show. And also because I think this fall could be quite surprising. In, in all seriousness, I think that, yes, we are constantly seeing lawmakers in this state figure out what it means to be progressive in Colorado because it is different from other states. Well, given kind of the, the hard road this bill might have to hoe, where does it leave the workers who want this right? Well, I, that's a big question. I wonder overall, like I mentioned earlier, like union membership has been declining for decades. I wonder if this moment ultimately does anything to reverse that trend. But what we do know is that that effort is there, is that we are in a moment of union organizing, no matter what it turns out in. So maybe we can take things back to Arapahoe Community College with Sarah Jungles. One moment that stood out to me was walking with her down the hallway where there were these dozens of class photo boards with like hundreds or maybe thousands of pictures of nursing graduates. And, you know, she's getting ready to jump into this new level of work as a full-fledged nurse. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm nervous. I think, uh, you know, if you get out there and you think you know everything, that's what I was told is not what you want to do. So I, you know, apprehensive. I want to make sure that I'm a good nurse and I do a good job. And so maybe depending on how this bill turns out, her life could be really busy in a whole way soon. Like she mentioned her group had attracted hundreds of members in a matter of days when they started recruiting. You know, I think uh, whatever I can do, I know there's a lot of fear um, and people are afraid. So I think that um, for me, I can't say that I also didn't have those fears, but I still just felt like it was an important thing to be a part of. So I think that Sarah's story really illustrates the challenge that the legislature faces right now, where there is this momentum, there is this new union movement 
how is the legislature going to kind of live up to the promises that some of its leaders have made to workers like her by introducing this bill? How are they going to, on the pro-union side, take advantage of this union moment while also balancing the concerns of those cities and the schools that make up such a big part of public life here in Colorado? And, you know, they've only got so many months to figure this out while they've still got this guaranteed trifecta before these 2022 elections coming up. So to be a little too neat about it, any collective bargaining bill we might see first has to be collectively bargained among all these forces. It's true, though. (laughs) Megan Verlee, Andrew Kenny, and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Follow this and all the episodes at NPR One, Apple, or anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as online at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.